Uh, thank you all for such a warm welcome. It's, this is my first time here at the uh, Plainfield Church, and so I'm delighted to see what's going on here, delighted to, to be here and preaching and uh, meeting all of you. I did grow up in Orland Park, and I've been a member at the Orland Church for as long as I can remember. Went to Trinity Christian College, graduated in 2020, and then moved to San Diego with my wife, who's also from uh, Orland, and went to Trinity as well. So enough about me. Let's turn our attention to the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 5, we're going to read four verses this morning, verses 8 through 11. So let's remember as we read this, that this is God's holy and inspired word. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we are so thankful this morning for your word. We ask that you would speak to us now by your spirit that you would help us to hear what it is that you want us to hear. Speak through me in such a way that my mouth is considered as your mouth and my lips are as yours, so long as I faithfully declare your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're jumping in this morning in 1 Peter 5. We're jumping in all the way at the end of the book. And so in order to get our feet sort of planted on the ground, we have to understand what it is that Peter has been talking about so far up until this point in the first five chapters. Now Peter has been dealing with what it looks like to live as a Christian in a broken and a temporary world. That is something that all of us can, can identify with very easily. We are Christians. We live in a broken and a temporary world. Peter calls us elect exiles in chapter 1. That is, we have been chosen by God. We have been given faith in Christ Jesus, but we are exiles. We live in a place that is not our ultimate or final home. And so Peter has taken us back and forth between two major themes, the hardships that we face as followers of Christ in this world, and the hope that we have as followers of Christ in this world. And so in our text this morning, we have Peter's final thoughts on these two major themes, hardship and hope. We have here his final call to be strong in the Lord, to commit to the faith, and to commit ourselves fully to God and to the hope that we have in him. So just two points to keep in mind today. First, we're going to talk about hardship. And second, we're going to talk about hope. Pretty simple. So first, verses 8 and 9, Peter talks about this hardship. And he begins by giving us two commands. What does he say? Be self-controlled and alert. Be sober-minded and be watchful, he says. Be self-controlled and alert, in other words. In other words, pay attention, Peter says. Wake up. He says you've got to be spiritually alert and ready. Be prepared for something. Well, we don't know what we need to be prepared for until we take a look at the very next phrase. What is it that we need to be prepared for? He says the enemy is on the prowl. And here Peter chooses to describe the devil, our enemy, as a lion. He pictures the devil as a lion. Now, I don't know about you. Hopefully, your only experience with lions in your life has been at a zoo. 
or at least in some sort of removed experience, right? And our perception of lions can be rather cute, rather cuddly. We even have Sierra here, our mountain lion from this week, chilling out, hanging out, and uh, she's got a smile on her face. She's not going to hurt anybody, right? When we would get to the zoo, we see the lion. If we're lucky, we see the lion, and he's tucked all the way back in the... Uh, he's laying on a rock. He might give us a big yawn and then put his head back down. That's probably the best we're going to get from a lion. But that's not what Peter is talking about here. I think, rather, what Peter is referring to is like something we might see on a Planet Earth documentary series. These lions are stealth hunters. This lion may be hiding in the tall grass, looking. He's got his eye on an antelope or a gazelle, and he is hungry. The dramatic music plays. You know, the drum beat kicks going. And the lion hides, and at the right moment, bang, the lion pounces. I think that's the picture that Peter has in mind here when he talks about the devil as a lion. He says he's on the hunt. He's hungry. He wants nothing more than to find the soul that might search after Christ and get rid of it. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in England in the 1800s. He said what the devil does is he perverts the truth. He tells horrible falsehoods. He tries to get us to doubt our salvation. And the devil's design, his goal in all of this, said Spurgeon, is to drag the searching soul away from God, to keep him from coming to Christ, him or her. Just like a lion might drag its prey, so the devil wants to drag the searching soul away from Christ. Now, how did this take shape in the lives of Peter's first readers? Well, they lived in the time of the Roman Empire. They suffered greatly under the hands of, of Emperor Nero at this time. And if you know anything about Emperor Nero, he was especially brutal to Christians. And so Christians endured sufferings, as Peter says in verse 9, across the world. Across the known world, Christians are undergoing suffering. It's a widespread thing. And we don't know exactly what these people endured, but we know there were people in Roman society who didn't like the gospel of Jesus Christ. People rejected it. They denounced it. They didn't allow Christians to participate in their social events. They didn't buy from Christian businesses. When there was a fire that broke out in Rome, Nero blamed the Christians. Why? Because the Christians didn't play into their system where they pleased the Roman gods and received gifts. And so if things weren't going well for the people in Rome, who was to blame? It was anybody who wasn't paying into their religious system. And of course, in extreme cases, Christians were sought after for their lives. What about us? What about our lives? How does this take shape in our lives, these attacks from our enemy, the devil? Well, by God's grace, we've been largely spared from the kinds of persecution that might threaten our lives, and that is absolutely something to give, give thanks to God for. But many of these same things that these Christians in Peter's day experienced also come our way. People in the world still do not like the gospel. People still denounce it. They reject it. People will still misunderstand our message. People will say things that aren't true about Christians. Maybe there are people in our workplaces. Maybe there are people in our schools who make fun of the kind of lives we live because we're dedicated to this holy living because of Jesus Christ. And they'll make fun of us, right? They don't understand why we live this way. Why don't we take pleasure in the same sorts of things they do? These same sorts of things come our way. 
But we also face these attacks from the devil on a more internal level, don't we? On a personal level. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during World War II, so I think he knew a little bit about what it looked like to suffer. And he said, talking about these internal and personal experiences, every day we encounter new temptations, he said. Every day we encounter new temptations, and every day we must suffer anew for Christ's sake. Every day, whether it be an old sin that we've struggled with for a long time, whether it's a new sin that might creep into our thoughts and entice us, maybe it's someone else who's pointing us, encouraging us down a path of sin. Every day, there will be new temptations that we face to engage in sin. And that is what the devil wants. That is where he hits us. And so Peter says, we need to be prepared for these attacks. We need to be prepared. But we're not only passive in this preparation. He says, yes, we are to be watchful and sober-minded in a passive way. But he goes on. He says, we are also to be active. We are to be active in resisting the devil and his attempts to devour. So how do we do that? How do we resist the devil? It sounds like a tall order. Well, I think there are three key things that we have to keep in mind as we try to do here what Peter tells us to do. And the first one, he says, right here in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. So the first thing is to stand firm in the faith. Well, how do we do that? I think Heidelberg Catechism, question 21, is helpful here. Heidelberg Catechism is one of our confessions in the Christian Reformed Church. It's a summary of what we believe. The question in 21 says, what is true faith? And the answer, we have not only a knowledge and a conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true, but we also have a deep-rooted assurance created in us by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but we too have had our sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. And so in this way, to resist the devil is not to take action against anyone, not to engage in hostile action against anyone or anything, but to trust God. To trust God. The essence of resisting the devil lies in wholeheartedly trusting the promises of God's word. It's believing that what he says is true. It's knowing deep in our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit in us that we have been freed from the power of sin, that we have been given salvation in Christ. There's an old hymn. It's called How Firm a Foundation. It speaks to this exactly. It says, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Not even the fiercest of the devil's schemes or attacks can shake the foundation of God's word. So stand upon it. That is the first thing. The second thing we have to ask ourselves, okay, first thing, stand firm in the faith. Stand upon God's word. Well, how do we do that? The second thing is be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. We need strength from outside ourselves to carry on in this battle. Think with me about when Paul talks about the armor of God. He says in Ephesians 6, he begins his discourse about the armor of God, putting on our, uh, you know, our, bless, our breastplate, our belt, our helmet, all the pieces of the armor and the sword for the attacks of the devil. And what does he say at the beginning? 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then Paul talks about putting on the armor of God. Our, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the, uh, the powers and authorities of darkness. And then he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. So, so be strong in the Lord. That is how we stand firm. Now, where is one place that this was put into practice? We have to take a look at Jesus' temptations, don't we? Now, Jesus' temptations, practically speaking, teach us a lot about how to resist the devil because Jesus himself was tempted in the wilderness by the devil and he did not sin. And so if we want to resist the devil in the same way that our Savior has resisted the devil, we would do well to learn from how he does it. Now, think of this with me, right? Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He has not eaten. So physically speaking, Jesus has no strength left. He has nothing left in the tank. He is absolutely sapped. So how does Jesus resist the devil? Does he rely on his physical strength, or does he rely on the strength from the Lord? Well, you might say, well, yeah, Jesus is is God himself, right? He's the second person of the Trinity. He's made incarnate. Of course, Jesus would be able to resist the devil. Well, sure, but Jesus is the same. He's just as much human as we are. And he was tempted in the same ways we are, says the author of Hebrews, yet he did not sin. He relied on the strength of the Lord's might, and he stood firm on God's word. Three times he told the devil to go away, quoting Scripture. So we resist the devil as well with the word of God. We resist by relying on the spirit, by standing on the word, by using these tools that God gives us for this battle. And of course, we remember that our strength to do this, to fight the devil, doesn't lie within ourselves. But we use what God gives us. We have complete reliance on him. And I'll take us back to that hymn, second verse. Fear not, God says, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I will strengthen you. I will help you and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Rely on the promises of his word with the strength of his might. And there's a third key component. Well, okay, so we go down the line, right? The first thing is to stand firm on God's word. The second thing is to rely on the strength of the Lord's might. Stand firm on God's word. How do we do that? Rely on the Lord's strength. Well, how do we rely on the Lord's strength? Prayer. Prayer. The third thing is to be prayerful. Peter began our passage here in verse 8 by saying that we should be sober-minded and watchful. He said, be sober-minded and watchful. And that word he uses there for watchful is the same word that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane when he told this same Peter, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. So they're in the garden. Jesus tells Peter, watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. So we find that a crucial ingredient to resisting temptation is to pray. It's no coincidence that Paul also emphasizes the same thing. He finishes talking about the armor of God and he says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, 
with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and for me. And so without prayer, we lack both the watchfulness that we need and the ability to take our stand against temptations. We shouldn't hesitate to ask our Father in heaven to give us the strength that we need in this battle. We need to ask the Lord for the strength to resist evil, to resist sin. We need to ask for the Spirit's help in this battle. We need to ask for endurance, ask for this deep-rooted faith that we've talked about. And God is so gracious. God is so gracious. He will not hesitate to give us these things, and he gives us the way to ask for them, and that is prayer. So pray. But pray not only for ourselves in this battle. Pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are also going through the same thing. Peter says in verse 9, your brotherhood throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And with those words, Peter encourages us here. Well, you might think to yourself, how is that encouraging? How is it encouraging to know that all around the world Christians are suffering this way? How is it encouraging to know that Christians all around the world are under the attacks of the devil? But what Peter is saying here is you're not alone in this. You're not alone in this battle. Your brothers and sisters around the world are suffering the same way you are. In fact, you can take a look around this morning at your brothers and sisters here at Plainfield. You can think over of our brothers and sisters in Orland in every church in this area, every church around the world. Everyone is suffering the same way. Everyone faces temptation. Everyone faces these attacks of the devil. Peter says, you are not alone. Your brothers and sisters can sympathize with you. Know that there are people on your side. There are people in your corner, so to speak. These people are also giving up their lives for this faith. There's a powerful comfort knowing that. We're not going through this alone, and there's great joy in knowing that others around us have been redeemed by Christ too. Others too have been delivered from their sin. Others have been called to faith and now eternal life. And others too now endure in this suffering with us. But even more than that, there's an even greater comfort knowing that we have a Savior who is able to sympathize with us. He was tempted in every way as we are, and he did not sin. Our own Savior experienced these same attacks, probably even harder. And he did not sin. He conquered. He was victorious. And he secured our place in doing so, in eternal glory. And that glory is what God has graciously called us to in Christ. And that is the hope that carries us through the hardship. We just sang this morning, your power will pull us through. This is what pulls us through the hardship, is the hope of Christ. And this is the hope that Peter turns to in verses 10 and 11. Two things to note here about our hope. The first is that God is at work even in our hardship. Even in our hardship, God is at work. Peter has talked about this several times in this book so far. He said in chapter 1, Think of a bar of gold. Think with me of a bar of gold. It goes through a refining process where it gets put through intense heat and fire, and what is removed is called dross. These are the impurities from gold, and what comes through the fire is pure, untarnished gold. In the same way, our suffering is like a refining fire. 
Every Christian who goes through this suffering is put through this refining fire by which God puts our sin to death. And when the time is right, God brings us through the fire and into his eternal glory in Christ. I'm going to go back to the same hymn, How Firm a Foundation. It says, When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be your supply. The flames will not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Our sufferings purify us in a way. And so that is hope, that God uses our sufferings to make us more like his son. He strengthens our faith. He builds our endurance. He puts our sin to death. He teaches us to live not for ourselves, but for him. So that's the first thing. We have to know that God is doing something in our sufferings. They are not in vain. The second thing is what's before us in our text this morning, and that is this direct promise that God will put an end to our hardship. God will put an end to our hardship. Peter offers this good news regarding what awaits the sufferer in the end. Now, we might ask, while we suffer, what do I have to look forward to? Might Peter's original readers have asked Peter, this is pretty rough. The Romans are bearing down on us. What do we have to look forward to us? What do we have to look forward to? And Peter starts in these four verses that we've read and kind of bogs us down a little bit, right? Verses 8 and 9 are pretty tough. We have an enemy. The devil's like a lion. He's on the prowl. He's after us. That's tough. But Peter doesn't leave us without hope. And when I was younger, just to illustrate this a bit, when I was younger, I used to go for the occasional jog. I don't anymore because jogging is not my thing. It may be your thing, but it's not mine. So, but my favorite part of running, my favorite part of the run, of course, was when it would be over, when I would come to the end, and I would round that last corner, and I would see my house in the distance. And I would think to myself, all right, I know I can just get there. I know I can make it there. It's not that far. It hurts, right? My joints are screaming at me. My lungs are about to go out after like a mile. But I knew what I had to look forward to at the end, right? I knew that if I could just get to my house, I could see it there. If I knew if I could get there, it would all be over. And I could rest, and I could relax, I could recover. Peter says in verse 10, this suffering that we endure lasts a little while. It lasts a little while. And this, he says, in direct contrast to what? The eternal glory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Suffering, a little while, glory, eternal Peter doesn't specify how long we will suffer or how intense our suffering will be. We don't know how long it'll last. We don't know what we'll face exactly because it differs for each of us. But what we do know, what we do know for certain is that while our hardship lasts a little while, our hope lasts forever. Our hope lasts forever. And we may be thinking right now, man, my suffering doesn't feel like it's going to last only a little while. You might be thinking, well, you don't know how bad I have it. You don't know how many loved ones I've lost. You don't know what kind of suffering I've been through. You don't know what sicknesses I've had to deal with. You don't know what people have done to me. Sometimes it doesn't seem like there's an end in sight for our sufferings. 
Certainly Peter's first readers would have been justified in talking about how brutal their lives were. But Peter says here, think of your suffering in comparison to the eternal glory that is ahead. Our present sufferings, Paul says in Romans 8, are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. And that's not to downplay our sufferings. That's not to poo-poo our sufferings and say, you know, there's nothing you can say. You shouldn't ever... You shouldn't ever bring your requests and your cares to God. That's not what he's saying. He's not downplaying our sufferings. He's highlighting the everlasting glory and joy that we have to look forward to. And Peter uses a few words at the end here of verse 10 to describe what we have to look forward to. Even while we suffer, he says, in the end, God will restore us, strengthen us, Make us firm and make us steadfast. I'm using a different translation. He says, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Now, why these words? Why these four words? And why does he pile them all on? Don't they all say the same thing? Well, what Peter is doing here is he's building this sort of crescendo. He says one word after another, and it intensifies to refer to the complete act of God in putting all things right in the end. Whatever we've lost, Whatever we've missed out on in this world because of our suffering, Peter says, God will make it right. And he will make it right for eternity. He called us in Christ to his eternal glory. And he himself, Peter says, he himself will complete us. He himself will secure us in eternal glory. We will be with our Savior. We will be made to suffer no more. That is the incredible hope that we have before us. And that is more than enough to sort of spur us on, to give us strength for the battle as we endure hardship even now. As Peter wraps up, he gives us one more reason to hope in the midst of all this hardship. Why else should we hope? He says in verse 11, To him be the dominion forever and ever. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says we have hope in God's power. We have hope in God's power. And the word he says here for dominion is the same word Paul uses in, in Ephesians 6. We've already read it. The strength of his might. Might and dominion, the same here. And I love the way, if you read the Greek here literally, it says in verse 11, to him be the dominion into the ages. Into the ages. And Peter doesn't just state this as a prayer or request, right? We might take it that way. To him be the dominion. May the power and the dominion be to God. No, Peter states this as a fact. As a fact. To God belongs the power, the dominion into the ages. Every other power pales in comparison to God. No other power can thwart or conquer his sovereign purposes. The Bible promises us over and over and over that God is in control. That God is ordering all things to pass for the good of his people and for his own glory. And that's what Peter is getting at here. God is all-powerful, nothing can stop him, and God will make all things new. Nothing will stop God from restoring you, confirming you, strengthening you, and establishing you in the end. But that's not all. God's dominion also means that the devil's power and the devil's time are limited, and God's are not. God's are not. 
Peter says, to him be the power, the dominion, into the ages. Amen. And he, said, he might as well say this in direct contrast to the devil, right? Not to the devil, not to your enemy, but to God. Belongs the power and the might forever and ever. The devil and his forces are powerful, yes. But they are creatures. They are finite. They are limited. They do not share the same power as God the Creator, and they never will. And so just as our hardship in this world only lasts a little while, Peter tells us, so the devil, as his influence, only lasts a little while too. The devil's influence only lasts a little while. He will be ultimately and completely destroyed. And that is good news for us. That is good news for us. Why? Because the lion doesn't get to eat. The lion goes hungry in the end. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul told to Timothy at the very end of his life. Paul says, So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And we can see the same thing with the Apostle Paul. The Lord will rescue us from every evil deed and bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, to you alone belongs the dominion and the power forever and ever. We thank you for preserving us through hardship and for giving us eternal hope in Christ Jesus, your Son. It's in his name that we now pray. Amen.